Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahal Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we are so grateful for the support we get from you, the listeners. On this episode, my co-presenter John Dorney and Dr. Creastor McCarthy discussed the Civil War Memory Project. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. It's me, John Dorney. I'm not joined, unfortunately, again by Carl Brennan, but we hope to have him back soon. We have a very interesting guest today. I'm joined by Christor McCarthy, the director of the UCD National Folklore Collection. You're very welcome, Christor. Thank you, John. Christor is involved in a very interesting project. It's called the Civil War Memory Project. And can you tell us what that is, Christor? So the Civil War Memory Project is an effort to, to capture those memories of the Civil War, obviously there are no living memories, but certainly there's family tradition and history and, you know, at a community level, especially. There's a bigger national story here, of course, but as far as possible, we want to get to people and get to capture their voices, you know, describing the impact of the Civil War on their own families, but also on the local communities and you know, the impact, the long-term impact of that in terms of, you know, divisions, unresolved angst relating to the Civil War. So, as I say, this is probably our last opportunity to get meaningful, you know, accounts from people. And we're going to try and cover both North and South uh, as many people as possible. And this is also part of a TV documentary, I believe. Yes, as part of this, so if I could describe briefly what the, the procedure will be, a number of history postgrads here in UCD, guided by myself and Conor Mulva and Mary McAuliffe, and of course the Scratch team, they will be prepped and provided with Zoom recorders, and they will go out with the uh, video team from Scratch Films, and they will interview people locally wherever the uh, issue is. And to some degree, th that will be informed by events, you know, major events relating to, we'll say, the Southwest. Obviously, there are certain particular hotspots, and Kerry being very much to the fore, um, but elsewhere also. You know, there's, there's Wexford, there's Cork, there's Dublin, uh, the North. Uh, so there's, there's quite a few areas. So the, the team will effectively document the history postgrads recording people you know gathering their memories 
And so there will be footage, there'll be video footage, and there'll be audio captured as well. So we will archive then all of these um, and cat fully catalog all of the recordings as they come back into us. So to some degree, we have a sense of what there is out there, but until we actually get out on the road and start interviewing, we won't really know what quite the depth and, and the amount of emotion really attached to the memories of the uh, Civil War. As you said, we're 100 years on now from the Irish Civil War, 1922 to 23. At this remove, what are you hoping to find in terms of memory? Because obviously we can't speak to people who were around at the time. Yes, well, my own impression is that, well, from experience, memory and traditions are, are uh, shall we say, reminiscences. The more local they are, the more likely you are to get verifiable details and accurate accounts of what happened. Now, of course, there's competing narratives in many cases, but all you can do is, is record, ask the appropriate questions, record what the answers are, probe to certainly to, to some extent. So not, not to be afraid to ask the hard questions. This is an opportunity and we can't let that slip by. So we may be confronted with a certain reluctance among people to touch on certain issues. So to some degree, we will have to be, you know, careful how we approach these things. You know, you have to be alert to sensitivities and so on like that. But it is an opportunity to ask those questions. So now is the time to do it. I mean, it brings me on to my next question, Christor, which is kind of difference between um, the study of memory and the study of history, you know, the archival record and so on. Memory is often wrong. I mean, even our own memories are, are often wrong, things that happened even relatively short while ago. So how do you reconcile that? Like, how does memory relate to the recorded history or what we might think of as, you know, kind of verifiable data on what happened in the past? Yes, I suppose you could look at it in terms of, you know, contrast between, you know, the official record and the unofficial record. You know, what we're interested in is people's thoughts and views and attitudes. We're, we're not going out to, to gather information and to then filter it through the official record. You know, impressions feelings, um, those sensitivities that I mentioned earlier, that's really, for me, is the stuff of history. You know, we all have a good idea. We all know the, the outline facts of what happened at the Civil War. But at a personal level, and particularly within the context of families, because we know that there were splits and divisions even within families, but between neighbours and so on like that, you, you want to assess the impact of that but you also want to document what on the ground, what people's attitudes were uh, and how they have interpreted the civil war at a local level and how they relate that then to the national picture. So oral history is, it, it is a form of historical evidence regardless, you know, however way you look at it, because even if you're close to the moment of the event, and a journalist or whatever reports on that, okay, then that's right very close to the event. But the actual people who were directly involved may feel a little differently or may focus in on particular aspects or elements of the event, you know, rather than the historical understanding of the, of the event, you know, the bigger national picture. It is a form of evidence regardless in oral history, however imperfect it might be, but it does at least give you a better idea of what the sentiment on the ground was. From my reading and so on of the, the idea of memory, you know, memory is about creating meaning. 
for people. It's it's more about how the things are processed rather than, you know, like what the guards might be involved in collecting kind of forensic evidence. So, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of thing are you expecting in terms of how people may have processed and passed down the story of the Civil War? Are you expecting a very kind of partisan memory? One would imagine with the passage of time that a certain detachment, you know, might have come into the narrative, but that may not necessarily be the case. For instance, we know that politically, you know, the two major political parties rose out of the ashes of the Civil War. And so allegiances at political level are still very, very strong. You know, if, if you are a member of the local Fianna Fáil, common, you won't see things necessarily in the same way that a member of the Fine Gael common are going to, to interpret it. In short, we're not certain, obviously, what we're going to encounter. And we will go in with an open mind and listen to what people are saying. And, and really, this will become a resource for historians in the future, you know, to sit down, listen to those recordings and then listen to it in, in the wider historical context and, and draw on it from that perspective. Sure. I mean, I think memory is fascinating, though, for this reason. I'm, one thing I've encountered, in, especially in the Dublin area, is that a kind of handed down memory, you know, to our own times from that time, has often confused the Civil War with the War of Independence or the, the Tan War. You know, like, to give you an example, near where I grew up in Rathbarnham, there was a memorial to a man, his name was Frank Lawler. He was assassinated during the Civil War by Free State Forces. Was It turned out to be a retaliation for something else. But when I was growing up, I was told that it was a, he was killed in an ambush fighting the Black and Tans, you know, in this particular corner. And, you know, similarly, a friend of mine, Jason Walsh McLean, great uncle, I think, of his was killed. Again, it turned out in the Civil War and a, na- a street was actually named after him in Glastool. But he was told growing up that, yeah, he was killed fighting the Black and Tans, you know. So I wonder how memory gets changed over the generations like this. Yeah, well, I, in that particular case, it sounds like that there was quite a deliberate effort made, you know, to, to conflate the two conveniently, I suppose, because perhaps there was some pain and some controversy, you know, attached you know, to the original event. And, and that may well be the case. You know, we may well encounter that, you know, recording narratives that are at variance with the actual record. It, it is certainly a process of memory and uh, oral history that things, events can become conflated. I was working with students the other day and I read out a piece from, from them recorded in 1937 by a school student as part of the school's folklore collection in that year. And the student, she conflated the Lusitania and the Titanic and completely jumbled them up uh, in her mind. And that was only literally, you know, less than a generation before. So things can get muddled over time for sure. What is interesting is why they are muddled, why memory has become hazy. Or perhaps the question needs to be asked, was there a deliberate particular reason, some sensitivity, some embarrassment, whatever attached to a particular event and therefore that event was played down and it becomes part of the more bigger tan war war of independence rather than the civil war clearly there's a lot of sensitivities and strong feelings um you know between the victors and the losers in the civil war and to some degree in ireland we are very good at certainly at a, at a general national level being able to ignore or pass over difficult questions you know to leave them lie but certainly the more local the, the information is, the more reliable that information will be. So we will be stepping back from the national picture, 
having won, obviously being the students, the, the postgrads would be well aware of the overall narrative of the civil war. But really the thing here is to listen carefully, ask the questions and wait for the answers and see what comes out. It may be that there is still a certain reluctance to talk about these things because, uh, you know, for, for family reasons at a community level, but let's go and ask the questions. Yeah, I mean, I think in those cases that I know of, it's not so much a deliberate attempt to distort people's memory. It's more of a kind of a psychological defense mechanism. I think, you know, people are quite proud that someone might have died fighting for independence, but they're not sure what to think about someone who might have died in the Civil War. So, you know, over a while, it doesn't get mentioned, then it gets it gets put away into that corner and people just presume it was something that they're more comfortable with, I think. But I think this is the way that memory is is changed over time is also very interesting and kind of significant. I don't I don't think that's necessarily a, a mark against the approach. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, there's no doubt, you know, memories are, are mutable. They can change over time and they will respond to what the current context, political context is perhaps, you know, they'll be guided by that. So, you know, narratives can, can be reshaped over time, you know, to suit the particular contemporary context. That, that is a fact. So you have to be, you have to listen out for that, but you, you can judge that after you've done the interview to some degree. Be mindful of those processes, certainly. And, you know, we, we will be operating, meeting up in the folklore collection and sitting down and, you know, preparing for trips that Postgrad's going to make so that they understand, you know, what the event, what happened, the, the bare facts, at least, of the action that took place. But also be prepared to, to listen and not be prescriptive about the questions that they're going to ask. So to keep an open mind as far as possible and not get as far as possible drawn into the emotion because there is, we're, we're quite sure there'll be quite a lot of emotions come up in, in the course of this um, project. I've spent quite a lot of time for my sense, you know, studying the civil war. I think, you know, it's a painful memory for lots of reasons. And one of them is, you know, the green against green, brother against brother narrative. You know, that is certainly the case and people can't understand how Irish nationalists could have killed each other. But there's more as well, you know, there's um, the sectarian dimension, particularly in early 1922, which people are very uncomfortable with. I'm talking about in the South as well as the North. And there's also, I've been struck, you know, an awful lot of stuff that's really very local, you know, about personality against personality, stuff about land, particularly in rural areas. People get killed over this in the Civil War. And I think these are the most sensitive things, I, I suspect, even more than the grand national narrative. Yes, this is very true. I mean, they, at, at moments like this, a lot, I think a lot of disputes and disagreements, you know, can bubble to the, and did certainly bubble to the surface, enmities between uh, individual families, disputes over land and so on like that. There's no doubt that scores were settled and um, things were done that, that were not related to the cause as such. So you know, there's a lot of layers clearly to the civil war and, and as far as possible, at least be mindful of the issues and ask the questions and wait to see what, what, you, what comes back. N not be afraid to, to confront it, you know, with perhaps hard questions, but as I said earlier, not to be too prescriptive at the same time. And that brings me on, I suppose, to my next question, which is, are you going to be looking at for particular places and particular incidents related to the Civil War? Well, we've been, uh, what we're doing is, is uh, Scratch Films and ourselves here in UCD, 
were adding names and were creating spreadsheets of names of potential. We use the word, by the way, John here, informant, <laughs> as distinct from informer. And this is a legacy of the, the Swedish connection to the Folklore Commission's work. We adopted the Swedish model in Ireland for recording folklore. And in Sweden, they refer to them as informants rather than narrators or storytellers, which is an interesting approach. That's the, the term we use. So we are creating lists of potential people in different parts of Ireland and also listing out what were the main events. So as far as possible to try and make sure that, you know, important events, significant events within the Civil War in different parts of Ireland, that we're mindful of them and that we try and locate informants in that district who will respond to us, who will be open to, to being interviewed. So we're, we're trying, uh, approaching it in as, in as thorough a uh, way as possible, being mindful of the resources that we have at our hands. Uh, yeah, the word informant is very loaded in an Irish context, of course. But, <laughs> you know, but for example, are you looking for things like the Ballycidi massacre of March 1923, or, you know, very standout incidents like that, the fall of the floor courts and so on? Yes, absolutely. They're unavoidable. And that's, you know, when often when people think of the worst excesses of the civil war, they think of Ballycidi, Killarney, we'll be going down and filming at uh, Clash Melkin as well. So, you know, we've already identified numbers of people there who are keen to speak to us. I know it has attracted a lot of attention in the past and people may say, oh, well, you know, you're beating a familiar drum in that regard. But as I say, this is an opportunity to ask relevant questions of as many realistically people as we possibly can and to get all of that, that story. And, and, and it's for historians then in coming years then to to sit down to listen to those accounts and to make sense of them and to piece them together. So, yes, the major standout events, certainly. But we will, you know, we'll go to Sligo, we'll go to Armagh, you know, we'll go to uh, to Belfast, you know, we'll go to Wexford. So th there were there were quite a few events. And, you know, we want to make sure that we try and touch on as many as possible you know, within the time frame that we have. So the part of the process is two documentaries will be generated as part of this uh, project under the direction of uh, Maurice Sweeney, and they will be aired in, I believe, late September on RTE. So that, to some degree, will give a flavour of what we have unearthed in the previous months in terms of our sources, our, our local sources. I'll use that word informant again <laughs> and just, just put in a word and say that it doesn't mean informer. You know, there's, I think there's a broader question about how oral history has been used in, in Ireland. You know, regarding the revolutionary period, it's kind of a mythologized event, but like in a broader sense, how long has oral history been um, going on in Ireland and what's, what kind of thing has it been used for before in terms of the national folklore collection? Well, from the very start, from the very formation of the Irish Folklore Commission, oral history was a critical part of it. In those days, it would have been referred to as historical tradition, but in, in essence, it was oral history. And that was the, the approach of the commission, guided by the experience of the Swedes, was to document tradition, folklore, in the widest possible sense. So uh, that ranges from, you know, the verbal art at one end, material culture on the other, um, practices, customs, beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. But the historical tradition or oral history was a key element of that. And in Ireland, we have a long history of what we call shanachas, you know, the effectively oral history or cultural history and a long tradition of passing that on one to the next and framing 
and reframing and narrating incidents over time. And uh, if we look at, if we say try draw a distinction between oral tradition and oral history, if I can. If we talk oral history is an attempt to be relayed as factually as possible within limits, one's own inherited uh, or, or even uh, first-hand observations of an event. Oral tradition, on the other hand, is subject to mythologizing. Um, it's where you take, you know, major characters. We'll take Daniel O'Connell, you know, Parnell, the uncrowned king, even De Valera in oral tradition was supposed to have a cross on his back, uh, like the donkey that carried Jesus out of Jerusalem. So there's, if you like, a certain heroic biography that becomes attached to historical figures in folklore. And that's very interesting in itself, even though it, it's misleading, it nonetheless points to the fact that these people were revered and that they were considered exceptional and patriots and so on. So you get gradual accretions of, of ideas and memes and so on attaching to these uh, figures. So, you know, much of what you hear about in, in tradition about Daniel O'Connell, there's very little or no basis for it. In fact, nevertheless, it does tell you a lot about just how exalted he was and the, the following that he had uh, in Ireland. And so, the same is true, uh, I think, of demon figures like Cromwell. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. A huge figure. Um, even over the space of several hundred years, he hasn't gone away. He's in, uh, invoked so frequently. A historian is bringing out a book very shortly on Oliver Cromwell and his place in how he's represented uh, through the medium of Irish folklore, you know, as a bogey figure and so on like that. So that's I think Sarah Covington is going to uh, bring this out very shortly. And that will be quite interesting because she has combed through all of the oral accounts, the traditional accounts, and there's a huge amount of mythologizing. Nonetheless, you have to take it very, very seriously. This material didn't appear out of nowhere. And I think she's been combing carefully the, the documentary sources and the literary sources especially in the 19th century and trying to separate ideas about trauma that came down via, you know, that come down to us through literary sources, but also the oral tradition. We sometimes talk in folklore circles about book lore, you know, the impact that writing, that the learned tradition has had on oral tradition. But it also works in the other way, the other direction as well. You know, people who grew up listening to stories about the dreaded Cromwell or whoever, that then influences their, their ideas and they then commit those to paper and they in turn can go back into tradition again where you get competing uh, accounts and interpretations, reinterpretations of events. And I wonder, is there a comparison perhaps in terms of taboo, in terms of it wasn't spoken about between the civil war and the famine say has the famine been looked at or memories of the famine oh yes very much so and and that that was actually one of the first major attempts by the irish folklore commission to document uh, oral history in 1945 the the committee on i forget what they were called it was led by dudley edwards they established to gather as much information about the famine 100 years after the start of the famine so the commission approached several uh, about 30 or 40 of its full-time and part-time collectors and came up with a detailed questionnaire on all aspects of the famine so as a result we have about 12 volumes of information recorded uh, much of it very localized information which is it complements nicely the official record you know kind of expands very much our understanding of what the impact of the famine was at a local level 
So that amounts to several thousand pages of information. Subsequent folklore collectors have directed a lot of attention towards um, historical events. You know, the attempt to document the oral history of the famine was about 100 years afterwards, which is the same distance as we are now from the Civil War. Now, obviously, the famine was a much worse event than the Irish Civil War in terms of loss of life and everything like that. But based on that, like, what's the difference between, say, the record and the memory of the famine? You know, is there, is there a big divergence between what people have written down about it and what the local history was or the oral history was? Well, as I said, oral history can complement and add detail that the official record doesn't contain. But more importantly, I think it can give a strong hint of the, the social impact, the emotional impact, especially on families of the famine, you know, where families are broken up, where, where um, the, the fatalities and so on. So we get a much more colourful impression and understanding of just what the famine was like on the ground, rather than, if you like, the dry official statistics. But if I could illustrate this, you know, we, we sometimes think that, you know, if there's a hundred years between the present and the actual occasion of uh, some terrible event, you know, that things can be very much distorted and so on with the passage of time. Yes, that, that is the case. But to illustrate, I once interviewed a woman, she was 87 years of age in South Kerry in Kilgarvan in the early 1990s. And I recorded stories from her about the famine, which she had heard from her grandfather, who lived through the famine. And she remembered her grandfather very well. And he told her a great many stories, one of which, for instance, tells of an old a couple coming from further west, from Carsavine area, and looking for, for food uh, in Kilgarvan. And they were given some food and provided with shelter in a, a small outhouse next to their home. And they were, according to Nora, a candle was lit, a small butt of a candle, before they went to, to sleep. And when her grandfather and his parents came out in the morning, the couple were dead, but the candle was still lit. So those are very powerful ways of conveying, you know, the depth of feeling and the heart and everything. And if you think about it, I was witness, listened to somebody tell those stories who in turn had, list, had heard them from uh, in detail from somebody who lived through it. So there's only there was only two steps between my comprehension of the story and the actual passage of the uh, somebody who was there uh, providing a first-hand account of the event. So uh, what I'm trying to get at in a long-winded way, John, is to say that sometimes we overestimate the distance at the um, passage of time. Through, through families, you know, traditions can filter down through families unaffected by greater, um, bigger narratives that are occurring outside. Yeah, I mean, when I say the divergence between the oral record and the, you know, the written record, I'm not necessarily saying that the oral record is wrong. What I'm saying is there's a difference between how people may have experienced these events and how they were, you know, written down and officially remembered. You know, for example, I mean, I used to have a lot of Spanish friends when I was learning Spanish here in Dublin, and they would talk now and again about the family memory of the Spanish Civil War. And what I was struck by was it wasn't so much a partisan memory of left versus right and so on, although their families had been on various sides. The memory seemed to be of this terrible catastrophe that no one could understand, you know, and a terrible time of hardship that, you know, they did, nobody ever wanted to go back to rather than, you know, kind of really partisan memory, which surprised me, you know. So I think, you know, that that can tell us something as well, don't you think? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, I, 
I mean, what you're driving at there, John, is that how do we integrate and make sense of those events? And, you know, how can we come up with a, with an agreed narrative, a common understanding, our, our position in relation to, to terrible events? But without doubt, the bigger the event, the longer it takes to integrate the implications of all of, of, of that. It's still very fresh. I know in Spain, there's still a lot of division and so on uh, and anger around it. But, you know, societies have to move on. So you have to put aside things and, and, and get on with things and, you know, sublimate a lot of these bits of information, you know. So there's, there's a cognitive process, uh, I guess, involved here, you know, that you're repressing a certain amount because you have to, because, you know, life must go on. But nonetheless, they're there and they can inform, you know, as they say in, in Irish, ishkefe halav, you know, that uh, water runs deep. Mm. Um, yeah, this is all, and so very, you know, Freudian and, and so on, the, the idea of repressing it, but it comes back later. I mean, it's, I'm no psychologist, but the idea, there is an idea in psychology of catharsis, where when you revisit them and you try to reinterpret or go back to these memories. Is that a part of what you're doing with this project? Well, as I say, I, I, I'm going to leave it to the historians like you okay. to, to, to interpret or reinterpret these things. So, you know, as far as possible, like I said, we, we'll go at this with an open mind and a listening ear and invite the people to share their memories uh, and to put them on the record. I guess you could see that it's just another step in how we have, how we make sense of the civil war. Because you know, here there, there is a, a concerted effort to go out and, and simply to talk to people and to take it in an intensive way and to see what comes out of that, see, see what is presented to us. I mean, one more question before we move on to the, the nuts and bolts of the project and how people can contribute. One thing that must be important in our terms of Irish oral history is the language shift that happened in Ireland from a majority Irish speaking country to a majority English speaking country. And this was, it was quite, late in the day, I suppose, in the at the time of the Civil War and the Revolutionary period, but there was still very significant Irish-speaking areas at the time. Is there a difference between the way tradition is passed down in a, an area that's had a language shift or that hasn't had a language shift, you know, that's still an Irish-speaking? Or I wouldn't suggest that there is any major difference in how things are remembered to the medium of Irish or English. It's not to suggest that there's a purer, clearer picture can emerge from uh, an Irish language district as, as distinct from an English-speaking district. I wouldn't think that there was any major difference. I mean, if you take West Kerry, for instance, you know, if as far east as Dingle, mainly Irish-speaking, almost certainly in, in, in the 1920s, but then Dingle town itself, of course, long English-speaking for, for very many years. And, you know, the events, of the War of Independence and the Civil War affected people in throughout the peninsula, throughout the Cartagena Peninsula. They, they are popular traditions, are, are uh, aspects of oral history rather than confined to any one language group or anything like that. I think I phrased the question badly. What I meant was, I suppose, if an area was Irish speaking back then and then it's since had a language shift, does that affect how stories can be passed down? It's certainly true in terms of storytelling for instance that there is a, a richness in great areas and that if you like longer and more 
uh, complex versions of story tell of stories, international tales, folk tales have come down through the generations and, and survive in a more comprehensive, more a fuller uh, format than in English speaking here. So there was a certain amount of laws, cultural laws, without a doubt, uh, resulting from the language change and language shift. But when it comes to, you know, uh, shorter historical legend and even belief legend, there is certainly that has maintained its strength regardless in English-speaking districts and Irish-speaking districts. And I think, as you know, in Ireland, we are given to telling and rehearsing uh, stories in the form of entertainment and, you know, communication, etc. And that is true regardless whether you're in the Gaeltacht or the Gaeltacht. But it, it is certainly one thing that's worth investigating, and particularly when it comes to memory and historical memory. And of course, you have to take into account that in many respects, the Gaeltacht areas, certainly in the West, were the less well-off economically and there's greater emigration from those areas where you have perhaps in the Midlands a certain greater continuity, if you like, of you know population that could be argued and in urban settings. So there's a contradiction, an apparent contradiction in the, in the sense that, well, on the one hand, you have very culturally rich and uh, very vital communities passing on tradition through the medium of Irish, but those communities were very marginal too in comparison to other parts of the country. So it's an interesting question, John, I have to say, talks of you know, continuity of tradition and strength of tradition in the different parts of Ireland and, and how they have been maintained or how they have weakened down through the years. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm asking you to do something very difficult here, Christo, which is to anticipate what you're going to find out, which is obviously impossible to do. But, you know, just my, my only comment on that is one of the significant things about the Civil War with regard to that is that, especially after the first month or two of the Civil War, a lot of the guerrillas were kind of driven to very marginal areas of the country, mountainous areas, which in, in some cases were Celtic areas as well, you know, especially in South Kerry, in Mayo, and places like that, or North Galway and stuff, I, which at the time I think were still Gaeltacht's. You can correct me on that. Yes, well, you have, um, I mean, the likes of Clifton and Roundstone were English-speaking, you know, from the late 19th century on. But yes, the, the Gaelic was much larger. Uh, yeah, it was certainly in Kerry anyway. The South Kerry was, was basically a conflict zone throughout the Civil War of, of some yeah. intensity. So that the Irish language record is, is, is going to be significant, I imagine. Oh, very much so. It's important, that, as far as possible, to record memories through the medium of Irish where possible because people may be on the one hand more comfortable talking in a language that they've grown up from the cradle with and, and consequently richer perhaps, arguably. But your point is well made that you know, it is in sort of highland areas that where a lot of the, the irregulars re retreated to and you know, South Kerry, West Kerry, um, Connemara, et cetera. For those reasons, it's important to make sure that we interview as many people as possible because there was more contact in those areas with the with the irregulars. Now we don't we don't like the I word in this on this show, you know. Yeah. Oh, yes, anti, I, anti -treaty I, as soon as I said it, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was a six counties moment. Yes. Uh, no, that's okay. Uh, so now we move on though to uh, the nuts and bolts of the project. So it's called the Civil War Memory Project. And if people want to get in touch, if they want to contribute, how can they do that? Well, they can contact uh, Scratch Films 
Uh, so info at scratchfilms.ie. Uh, they can contact, contact us here directly in UCD. And I'll just call out email address. It's short. It's bailidus at ucd.ie. And Bailidus is, of course, B-E-A-L-O-I-D-E-A-S. So um, very appropriate word. It captures something that the word folklore doesn't because it emphasizes the idea of oral transmission and of knowledge. Uh, so Bailidus at ucd.ie. They can also phone us here at 716-8216 and talk to myself or Alba. Uh, and she will take their, their details down. So we would encourage people, you know, to come forward and share, you know, their memories with us as far as possible. We know this was a difficult period in Irish history, but this is an opportunity to, to, to capture people's feelings and, you know, family and community traditions while it's still possible to do so. And, you know, just to, you know, reassure people, it's not a question that they're going to be interrogated or anything like that, is it? No, no. And I would emphasize that strongly. As I said earlier, we're, we're not going to be prescriptive, but the interviewers will be mindful of, you know, the facts of the at very least, the outline facts of what happened at a local level. We're here to listen, to record and to encourage and to invite people to share those memories. But we, we won't be going in with a big stick, demanding answers to, to awkward or difficult questions. Yeah, so it's very much an idea of sharing people's memories and, and not, you know, saying you're right or you're wrong or anything like that. No, no. We have to be very careful that we stand back from that, and that we maintain a certain detachment in the course of the interviews. As far as that is possible, of course, we're all human. Uh, nonetheless, we can sympathise and empathise with people. But at the end of the day, our job is to document, to record what people wish to share with us. So we, as I said, we won't be going around making with a big stick, demanding answers to difficult questions. We, you know, there's limitations to what can be done, of course, John. You know, I mean, it is 100 years and, you know, not, notwithstanding what we've discussed earlier about memory and so on at that, it is a, a significant passage of time. So we will be mindful of the fact that a certain amount of confusion or a conflation of events has taken place in the interim period. That's only natural. But as I point out, the more local you go in your investigation, the more the surer the ground that you're going to be standing on. So it's an open invitation to, to people to come forward, particularly those who have family members who were directly involved in the conflict on either side, but also at a local level. The actions that took place, you know, so even if people weren't directly affected, uh, their family wasn't directly affected, nonetheless, they were there and witness accounts will have passed on from generation to generation in the interim. We'd love to record those. Yeah, and I mean, if I, you know, without get, wanting to be too dramatic about it, I do think there's great value in, you know, recovering the memories of the Civil War as a form of catharsis, you know, as a form of actually taking the poison out of them, but maybe I'm, I'm being too romantic about that. Okay, so Christopher McCarthy, of the, he's the director of the National Folklore Collection. Thank you very much for joining us. So we have the details. I'll also post them on the site when I post this interview. So thank you very much, Christopher, for joining us. Pleasure, John. Thank you. And that was my co-presenter, John Dorney from theirishstory.com with Dr. Creostora McCarthy discussing the Civil War Memory Project. You can listen to this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, 
irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And once again, if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.